Indeed, we've not been in Romans in a consistently moving way, but in the last seven weeks we've been in Romans a lot. As we've talked about the five solas, as we've talked about the Reformation, as we've talked about all that was accomplished through that. And so now we come back to this passage. This is sort of the, I kind of saved this intentionally, uh, because this passage is, is the summary, if you will, of everything that's gone before, before it from verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way to, to chapter 3 and verse 8. Uh, all the argument that he's made there, Paul is kind of bringing to a summation in this particular passage. And so I think it's important to see this and to think back on where we have come from. I, I think that's important. As a matter of fact, in that first verse, and I won't start it just yet, but, but Paul begins by saying, what then? It's almost like he's a, a lawyer coming to the end of an argument before the court, and he says, okay, what do I say about all this? I've told you all of this. Now, how can I summarize it? How can I make my summation? And he does it quite well in verses 9 through 20. It's a passage that we understand talks about the sinfulness of man. Talks about the, the whole human race and the condition of that race apart from Jesus Christ. It, it is perhaps one of the most negative passages in all the Bible from one perspective. Matter of fact, it may even could be said it's the most depressing passage in all of the Bible if you read it outside of the context of where it sits. And if you fail to go on to verse 21 in the following verses that begin to unfold and, and make clear the good news of Christ, you're stuck here in verses 9 through 20 of chapter 3 with what can arguably be a, a statement of the bad news of the gospel. You know, the gospel is the good news, but here's the bad news that, that sort of uh, makes the gospel necessary, that make, and it's the bad news that makes the gospel such great, overwhelming, unbelievable news when we really come to see it in its clarity. So the Apostle Paul is going to teach us that. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. For all have turned aside, all, together they have become worthless. There, No one does good, not even one. Thus the title of my sermon, Nobody! Exclamation point. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruins and ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will ever be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We've talked about the Reformation, leading up to last Sunday, Reformation Sunday, and last Tuesday being Reformation Day, the 
the 31st of October, the celebration of Luther's 95 Theses. But, but, but Luther was a man who, who knew this passage very well. And throughout his life in ministry, he, he went back to it over and over again to talk about the neediness of the, of the human race, the neediness of all of those who are without the gospel, those who depend on their own goodness, depend on their own righteousness, their own works righteousness. He, he continued to go back to it. As a matter of fact, in, as Luther came to the end of his life, you know, he was born in Eisbach, Germany, and, and at the end of his life, he ended up going back to Eisbach, not specifically to die, but he went back there because there was a dispute in the church there, and, and Luther thought he could go back and serve as a mediator between the two sides that were in dispute and could help bring some peace and some understanding between those two sides. He went back, and on the Sunday before the meetings for that particular mediation, Luther preached in the church there at Eisman, and, and he preached justification by faith alone, by the grace of God alone, and that last sermon they ever preached is in print. And it's a glorious thing to read to see that what Luther began in 1517, he continued right up to his death until 1543, I believe it was. As he, he continued to proclaim the same message, he never wavered from the fact that salvation is by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone. And he preached that sermon, and the next day or that night one, he fell ill. And by the time the Tuesday arrived, he was deathly ill. And he was on his deathbed in, there in a friend's home in Eisman. And he, he called together the people and he wrote out on that bed his last will and testament. His, his wife wasn't even there with him. Katie was still back in Wittenberg. And, and so he, he had them write out his last will and testament, knowing that he probably would die, which he did on that day. And the last recorded words of Luther that he spoke as that will was being written were these words. We are beggars. That is true. It's the last recorded words of Martin Luther. We are beggars. Why are we beggars? Well, we are beggars because this passage is true. We are beggars to the grace of God. We are absolutely need, needy under the grace of God. Apart from the grace of God, there is no hope. Apart from the grace of God, there is no life. Apart from the grace of God, there is no salvation. There's no right relationship with, with Jesus Christ and no right relationship with God through him. We are beggars. This is true. And when you look at the passage as the Apostle Paul unfolds it, you see why Luther knew that, why Luther believed that, and why, why if we are a gospel church and if we are gospel believers, we too believe that we are beggars. I will never forget, and, and after this sermon today, you may be prone to say that I, as many people have early on in this city, that I just talk too much about sin. I'll never forget the, the person who said, you know, for two and a half years, you've, all we've heard from our pulpit is that man is a sinner and can only be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And, and, and caveat that they close with, this is a strong teaching of Calvinism, a strong teaching of John Calvin. No, this is a strong teaching of the Apostle Paul. It's a strong teaching of the gospel has nothing to do with those things. It has nothing to do with anything except the pure gospel message. And the thing that Paul wants us to see here is that we all stand outside of Christ under condemnation and under need for salvation 
by the grace of God. That's all he's wanting you to see. But he's showing the pervasiveness. He's showing the, 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 the total ungodliness of sin here. So see what he says. He starts out by saying, what, what, do, we, what do we say about this? What are we gonna, how are we going to close this out? He's talked about the Jews having the law and there being some advantage because they had the oracles of God. They should have heard the oracles of God. They, they should have responded to God because they gave they were given that through the prophets and through those who went before them, the teachers before them, but yet they rejected them. And so in the passages leading up to this, Paul began in verses one, chapter 1, 18 through 32 by saying there is a blatant unrighteousness in, in the Gentile world. There is an idolatry. There is a turning away from God. There's a wanting to, to, to worship self rather than God. There is an absolute unrighteousness in the Gentile world. And he, he, I mean, he painted it ugly. He said it's so unrighteous that it goes from one stage to another stage. It goes from sin that looks almost respectable to sin that is absolutely heinous. And God continues to give them over to that depraved mind. He continues to give them over to the desires of their sin. So the, the Gentile world. Then he attacked in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, the hypocritical righteousness of the moralizers. He said, oh, there's some who look back and say, yeah, I'm glad I'm not like him or I'm not like her. I'm, I'm glad that, that I have a moral life. I'm glad that, that I really try to be better than all those Gentiles out there. And to that he said, you're no better than they are. Because your morality is something that you've built for yourself. Your morality is something that, that you see as inbred or something and it's just as sinful as the Gentiles' sinfulness. And then he showed that the confident self-righteousness of the Jewish people was, was no better because they had the anomaly of they had the law of God and they boasted about the law of God, but they continued to break the law of God. They said, oh, we've got the commandments and we've got the word of God. We've got the law of God. And yet over and over and over again, they just continued to break it in many ways like the Gentiles did, running back to idolatry, running back to promoting self as my own God. So, so Paul says, I want you to understand this, this thing is so pervasive. This is, uh, sin is so unrighteous and ungodly. And, and the Old Testament shows us that, Paul says. And, and that's what he does in verses 10 through verse 20. Oh, excuse me, verse 18. In verses 10 through verse 18, he, he shows us what the Old Testament law has taught us about man's sinfulness and their need for Christ. His, his summation there in verses 19 and 20 is very clear, but he wants us to understand that this is not anything new from him. This is not something he's made up or something that, that he has kind of drawn out of culture around him. He's saying this is what God has been saying for generation after generation after generation. Take, for instance, first, the second part of verse 10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. That's dealing with their legal standing. Paul is saying, listen, nobody has the legal standing of righteousness before God. They stand guilty. They stand unrighteous. They stand as in need of a Savior. And the psalmist talked about that very clearly in Psalm 14. In Psalm 14, 3, it said, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. Corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Paul is quoting out of that Psalm 14. 
as the psalmist looked around under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and said, this is where culture is, and this is where culture is going. The first verse of that, of that psalm, Psalm 14, you know quite well. The psalmist simply said, you know, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Uh, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. I mean, when Paul makes the statement, none is righteous, no, not one, he's standing on the good ground of historical theology throughout all the history of Israel as it led up to the coming of Christ and his life and his death and his, bur- his, his burial and resurrection that brings about salvation. Verse 11 talks about not only do they have a bad legal standing before God, not only is it they are guilty before the judge, in every respect, but he also talks about their minds being affected by this sin. He he says in the first part of verse 11, he says, no one understands. They talk about understanding. They talk about living as they think they should. They talk about having this concept of of, of something that is religious and something that is moral. But Paul says, and the psalmist said, listen, you need to understand that no one really understands. No one seeks for God. That's what the psalmist said in 114. There is, the, there is this understanding that is lacking. No one seeks for God talks about their motives. None seek after God. Now, I realize that as you sit there, you may very well be saying, wait a minute. There was a time, we talked about this a few weeks ago in the solas, there was a time in my life where I decided I was going to seek after God. And I sought Him. I, I read the Word. I prayed. I, I looked for Him. I went to church. I, I did all these things. I really wanted to know Him. I really wanted to have a relationship. I really sought after Him. But even as the hymn writer said, I, kind, I had to come to realize that when I said I was seeking after Him, I came to see it was really Him seeking me to lead me to seek Him. And that's what the psalmist says. And that's what Paul is saying here. Our motives tend to be self-centered. Our motives tend to be selfish. And no one seeks after God because God says they don't. And says it's by grace. Jesus said in John 6 and John 10, No man comes to the Father. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him, unless the Spirit draws him. There is this, there's this natural enmity toward God. Because there's this natural desire to be him. That was a problem of Adam and Eve in the garden. It's a problem you see all throughout the history of Israel and the history of the church in many ways, and certainly the history of culture. We don't want God telling us what to do. We want to do what we want to do. That's our basic motive. I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it. I want what I want. And then God comes along and touches us by His grace and changes, as Dr. T.W. Hunt used to say, He changes our wanter. Changes our wanter. He changes our desires. He gives us the desire to desire Him. He gives us the desire to walk with Him. He gives us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness' sake and for His glory. And that it, it, it ultimately turns out to our, our good in the end. But Paul says we have a legal standing that is unrighteous. We, our minds are, don't understand. Our motives don't seek for God. They seek for self. And, and then in verse 12, he says, 
quite clearly. Our wills are affected by this sin. Not just our motives, not just our thinking, but in verse 12 he says, For all have turned aside. Together they become worthless, for no one does good, not even one. He's just looking. Listen, when our thinking is off because of sin, and when our motives are polluted because of sin, then our wills, our actions, the things that we do, will be changed. And it says we turn away from Him, we turn aside altogether, we become worthless, no one does good unless it benefits us. No one, not even one, nobody does that. Paul is quoting there Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, where Isaiah says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of all who believe, all of us. The Lord has made a way. Now, Isaiah is talking in the past tense, in a future tense. Uh, Isaiah is saying, listen, we've all gone astray. Mankind is seeking their own thing, not seeking God, not desiring Him. We're like a bunch of sheep. They say, I've never been a sheep farmer, a sheep herder, whatever they call themselves. But but I've, I've read and I've observed from time to time that sheep are pretty much the dumbest animals in the world. Well, maybe cats right up there with them, but but but... Pretty much close to one another, you know. They, they want to do their own thing. They, they want to wander off. They want to, they want to go wherever they want to go. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to be herded. They want to be directed. So the shepherd has to get rather, rather rough with them sometimes in order to protect them from themselves. It's the same way in our relationship with Christ. Sometimes he has to grab us pretty hard. Sometimes he has to use his staff and his rod, and he has to jerk us back to to be obedient to Him because our desire is to do what we want to do. And so our wills are affected. Paul quotes the psalmist in Psalm 5, and he says not only are our wills and our motives and our minds affected, but as those are affected, so is our tongue, the things we say. You know, James deals... A lot with that in his little epistle. When he says the tongue is like a fire, it's like poison. It's, it's like you, know, you say things and you, you go to church and you praise God and then you curse mankind. It, it's, it, there's an inconsistency there among a lot of people, James says. And, and, and Paul is saying the same thing here in verse 10. He says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. And the venom of asp, snakes, vipers, is under their lips. They're quoting Psalm 5, which in verse 9 says, For there's no truth in their mouth. Their uttermost self, their, their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue and make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels, because the abundance of their transgressions cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. David's sometimes not as gracious as God is. 
says, God, here's what they've done. There's no truth in their mouth. They're liars. Their inmost self is filled with destruction. Their throat's an open grave. They flatter with their tongue and don't really mean what they say. Lord, just let them bear their own guilt. Ah. But thankfully, Isaiah saw ahead that he would lay our iniquity upon the Lord Jesus Christ when we believe, when our faith is in him. Psalm 140 also made that same kind of statement about the venom. It says in 140 verse 3, it says, They make their tongues sharp as a serpent's tongue, and under their lips is the venom of asp. There David says, Guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have planned to trip up my feet. Not a pretty picture. We have a legal standing of guilt. We have our minds affected, our motives affected, our wills affected, and our tongues affected by sin. But not just that, also our relationships with one another. In verses 15 through 17, he says, Their feet, those who have bitterness and cursings and, bitter, and all those things that venom under their lips, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths and ruin are misery. And the way of peace they have not known. In that he's quoting Isaiah chapter 59 verses 4 through 10, or out of the context is verses 4 through 10. You can read that for yourself later. But in verses 7 and 8 there, which is what you really paraphrase and it says their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity desolation and destruction are their highway are in their highways the way of peace they do not know and there's no justice in their paths they have made their roads crooked and no one no one who treads on them knows peace he says is there any wonder that we're at war Paul says, is there any wonder that we're at war? And today in our world, is there any wonder that we are at war and we can't live in peace? We say, well, why can't we just all get along? Why can't we all just like each other? Why can't we all just love each other? Well, that is a novel idea and a noble idea within the body of Christ that ought to be able to happen because of the work of Christ in our life. But Paul and David and the scriptures are filled with the fact that outside of Christ, apart from Christ, there is nothing but a lack of peace. There's nothing but conflict. There's nothing but bitterness and misery and ruin. And they do not know peace. Sin affects our relationships. And it's not just the other person's sin, folks. Sometimes our own. That plays right into it. Sin that we don't want to admit. I, I know that well. Sin that we don't want to admit, but sin that affects our relationships. But ultimately, verse 18, Paul says, it affects our relationship to God because when sin is at the heart of our life, there is that, there is that brokenness, and there's a wrong attitude toward God. He says in verse 18, he says, There is no fear of God, no fear of God before their eyes. 
David said the same thing in Psalm 36. He said, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. And there is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Paul says there is no fear of God before his eyes. David says there's no fear of God before his eyes. And because of that, all these other things become reality. Deception and lies, wars, conflicts, bitterness. I mean, to hear the Apostle Paul tell it, the world is a mess. If you don't think Paul is fairly accurate in his assessment, by the way, we know that he is because this is the inspired, inerrant text of Scripture. But if you don't think Paul is accurate in his description of the culture and the world, just watch the news tonight. It'll take you about three minutes. See, everything the Apostle Paul says here is true. So why is Paul doing this? Why is Paul for almost three full chapters dwelling on the negative? Why is he for almost three full chapters talking about sin, whether it's Gentile sin or moralist sin or religious sin? Why is he talking about sinfulness? It's for this reason that he talks about in verses 19 and 20. And it's quite simple. It's just, just simply this, that, that every mouth may be silenced. That every mouth may be silenced and that the whole world may be held accountable to God. 19, the second part of that. He says, for we know that whatever, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And listen to this, so that every mouth may be stopped, that is, made silent, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. In other words, Paul says, I'm telling you what God has said because there's coming a day when you're going to stand face to face with God. You're going to stand face to face with the creator of all of the universe, creator of everything that there is. You're going to stand squarely before him. And he's not going to be standing there, he's not going to be sitting there primarily as a, as a creator, although he is that, but he's going to be sitting there as a judge. And, and, and you're going to say, if you're outside of Christ, you're going to say, wait a minute, you know, I, I, was, I was pretty good. You balanced things out, and I, I did all right. You know, I, I, wasn't like, I wasn't like Charles Manson, or I wasn't like whoever you can think of as the worst person you can think of. I wasn't an Adolf Hitler, you know. You put me upside of them, and I look pretty good. And, and God's going to say, yeah, but it's not upside of them that it matters. It's where are you in relation to Christ? Are you perfect like he was? That'll shut your mouth. <laughs> that'll, that'll silence you quickly. But more importantly, are you clothed in his righteousness? Now, he's going to get into all that starting in the next verse, verse 21. 
but I, I would be amiss if I didn't tell you that, that all the bad news leads to the good news, and the good news is that God has redeemed a people for himself. He has justified a people. He has declared a people by imputing Christ's righteousness not guilty. And, and what a glorious thing Paul is going to unfold for us as we begin to see that take place in these verses. But he says, I want you to understand that every single person on the face of the earth, the whole world, every mouth, it does not matter who, where, how, what they've done, what they haven't done, they will be accountable to God. Question will be, are you in Adam, thus in your sin? Or are you in Christ, thus clothed by his righteousness and declared righteous? By the judge. That's all that really matters. Doesn't matter that you fed the poor. You did that out of a uh, sort of a selfish motivation. Doesn't matter if you went to church every Sunday, if it was just so you could look good in the community. It doesn't matter that if, you, if you did whatever you did. What matters is, have you trusted Christ? You placed your faith in Him. Because Paul says in verse 20, For by works of law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That is God's sight. Why? Because through the law merely comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was given that you might see your sin. The law was given for you to be able to see when, when God says you shall have no other gods before me that in my natural state I put a lot of things before him. The law was given so that I could see that when it says you shall not commit adultery and Jesus comes along and says but when you lust in your own heart you have committed adultery already that, that you, are, you are in sin. The law says you shall not lie but when you lie you violate and show that there is none righteous no not one not even me the law is given to show us our sin not to save us so if, if you say well I'm trying to live right that's noble and if you're in Christ he will change you and move you toward right living no doubt about that. But if you are outside of Christ and saying, I'm just really trying to be good, I'm trying to obey the Ten Commandments, obey the Golden Rule, obey the Beatitudes, and, and go on and on and on, all these things that are used all the time, I'm just trying to be a good person so God will love me, you have no understanding of the Gospel. And no understanding of your condition before a holy God. So Paul has spent almost three full chapters saying, here's who you are apart from Christ. Now he's going to move in to say, now here is Christ. Here's the gift of God. Here is the righteousness of God. Here is what he said earlier when he said, you know, that it is in his righteousness, in the gospel that his righteousness is revealed, the righteousness that is from him you and me he's going to go back to verse 17 of chapter 1 
and he's going to explain, starting in, in verse 21 of chapter 3, what he meant when he said, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and then the Gentile. And, and in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is manifested, is made known in the life of those who believe. Is the Christian life still a struggle? You know it is. Is the Christian life still a, a life of, of growth and of changing? You know it is. But Paul says until you understand the universality of sin, until you understand that there is, that there is no one who is not, uh, you know, is not under accusation without any possible defense, then you're really not ready to know the good news. Because the first act of coming to Christ is saying, nothing in my hand I bring, as the hymn says. Nothing in my hands I bring. I don't have any righteousness. I don't have any goodness. I don't have any love. I don't have any, I don't have any good deeds that I can say, Lord, just look at nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to... Your cross, I cling. The truth is, the only thing we have to bring to Christ is our sin, which put him on the cross, and which he bore in our place, the penalty for. That he might be our substitute and our sacrifice before a holy God. Like I said, these verses are perhaps the most depressing in all the Bible if you, if you just look at that and don't go any further. But when we go further, we see the glory of God revealed in the justification of God for those who, to those who believe. And we will see that next week. Where do you stand before Him? Let's pray. The one thing that the passage we just read and talked about points us to is the great truth that we're about to sing about. All I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. Nothing else matters. Doesn't matter if mom and dad are godly. Doesn't matter if husband or wife are godly. Doesn't matter if we've been in church our whole life. We cannot say all I have is Christ. And he is who I lean upon, totally and only. And we don't understand the gospel. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit will just break our hearts. We need to know you.
And Lord, show us your glory. We don't have to ask you to be present. You're here. You're, you're here always. But Lord, open our eyes to see your glory in this place. And this is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Think about these words as we sing them. I once was lost in darkest night. I thought I knew the way. But everything I sought led to darkness and death and the grave. All I have. All I have.